listener production. What do you wish you'd known during your pregnancy? If I could give one piece of advice to a pregnant woman approaching birth for the first time, it would be prepare for planning for A, B and C in your birth. Don't go in with one plan, which is what I did originally. Today on Feed, Play, Love, Sophie Walker, founder of the Australian Birth Stories podcast on her new guide for expectant women. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. During pregnancy and birth, there are a lot of unknowns, especially if you're going through it for the first time. Is it normal to feel so tired? Why does my body suddenly feel alien? What sort of birth plan do I want? And what on earth am I going to do with this little human once it's born? These are just some of the myriad of questions and decisions that women face. Luckily, help is at hand. Sophie Walker, the founder of the movement and podcast series Australian Birth Stories, has co-written a book called The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth. And she joins me on Feed, Play, Love. Hello, Sophie. So lovely to speak with you. It's so nice to be on. I think we spoke about five years ago, so it's been a long time between chats. We did. We did. And listen, even five years ago, your podcast was so popular. I know that it was inspired, well, you were inspired to start it after your own traumatic birth experience. Uh, when your firstborn came into the world, but did you have any sense, even back then, the first time we spoke, how popular this podcast would be? No, I really didn't. I I really just did it as a sort of cathartic um, exercise while I worked and managed my two little kids and I had no idea. And uh, yeah, it's quite unbelievable. It's just reached 11 million downloads. So I don't think I could have ever imagined that. Why do you think it's so popular? I just think, well, wherever I go, I feel like I'm often giving out, even in shops and things, my email address and I'll say Australian birth stories and whoever I'm talking to will immediately tell me their birth story. There's just (laughs) a real, (laughs) I need a, I need a pseudo one. And yet you um, still have three children yourself. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I think there's just a real cathartic um, thing that women just need to share. It's such a life altering moment for um, a woman to give birth. And there's just a real sense of you don't forget the details and you really want to share it both to kind of educate and empower, I think, which is what the podcast does. But from a woman's perspective, they just want to really relive that moment and process it. Um, Yeah. So I just think there's definitely no shortage of women wanting to come forward. And now in the early days, I was like badgering friends and family to come on. And now there's over 5,000 applications to come on the show. So no shortage of episodes. (laughs) That's amazing. So you have all these incredible conversations with women, of course, with so many different stories of birth. At what point did you think, hmm, I think maybe I need to write a book? Yeah, I just feel like over the years, people have asked me sort of whether it's through Instagram or on the podcast and in emails, it's like, what book should I read? Like I'm listening to the podcast and I'm up to date. What books should I get? And I've, I've read um, a few myself throughout my three pregnancies, but they're 
there isn't kind of a book that I feel is all encompassing and Australian focused and up to date. I feel like a lot of the books that people are reading nowadays are American. And I think like Ina Mae Gaskins is an old favourite, but that was written in the 70s. And um, her work's incredible, but it's just not Australian focused and up to date. And I, I just felt I have, I'm not one of those people that said oh, I wanted to write a book on it wasn't on my bucket list of things to do. <laughs> but it, in the same way that the podcast has just grown and evolved, I think I was like, oh, we really need to fill this void here and um, create a current Australian guide that that captures everything. I think there's also books out there that are skewed to one style of birth or one approach to labour. And we wanted something that everyone could come to, whether they're having a home birth or they're having um, a planned cesarean in hospital. We wanted that there to be one spot that kind of captured all that information and supported you through the process. Let's talk about some of the things that you write about in the book, because you talk about the phrase, I wish someone had told me. And that's something that you hear a lot from women the first time they've been through pregnancy and birth. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the things that come up again and again that you hear women wished they'd known in advance? I think the overarching or the most common one is that people didn't feel like they had the option to speak up and say how they felt or what their wishes were. I feel like a lot of, we know that one in three Australian women report having birth trauma and a big component to that is feeling disempowered in the birth space. So suddenly all these things are happening in the birth and they feel like they're almost a passenger rather than someone who can kind of speak up and, and say, actually, if you're going to do that, then I'd like you to do it in this way. Or if I choose this option, then I know it that increases the possibility of A, B and C happening. And I think people kind of feel um, in that medical setting, because for a lot of other medical conditions and um, procedures that that take place in hospitals, you do lean on the professional and you just um, often go with what they advise. But it's it's quite different in birth. And and I think empowering women with education, which is the, yeah, the crux of what I love to do now is to say, okay, these are all the things that might happen. How do you feel about that? And what, what would you like to happen? And feeling heard and feeling part of that process of making decisions in birth tends to improve women's outcome and the way that they report how they felt post-birth. I must say that definitely resonates with me. I would completely walk through those hospital doors and said, whatever you do, I know you know best. What about those situations where people might hear that about being more empowered in the birth suite and think, but what if it's a dangerous situation and they do know better? Like how do you help to empower women to, to sort of be able to have control, the control they need to feel safe in the medical setting, but also to know when to hand that control over to the professionals in the room, I guess. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, I'm not a midwife or a doctor and I totally respect that they've done seven plus years of um, medical training and they do know the skills and have all that. But I think it's just creating that dialogue, mm. which it really is important to not just be on the day. It's that whole lead up to the birth of uh, really unpacking kind of fears or particularly if you've had a past birth where something's unfolded and that's really triggering for you approaching your second birth, having those discussions when you're not kind of in the throes of a contraction and um, really sharing your um 
yeah, your wishes with your care provider at that time is really important. And of course, if your baby's heart rate's in distress or the mother is showing signs of, um, yeah, distress as well, then by all means, like I am not discouraging of um, the medical professions at all, but have those conversations. Like I'm happy if the baby's um, in danger or the or I'm in danger, then I'm happy for you to just go ahead with the cesarean or whatever needs to happen. But having that conversation so that you're all on the same page is so, so important. And how important is a birthing partner in that scenario? Because I'm thinking what I was like in labour Um, I wasn't very rational (laughs) or cognizant of whatever my plans were. So how important is that role of having someone else in the room who knows what your wishes and desires might be? Yeah, so important. I think um, I was pretty nonverbal in my births, although I did like, <laughs> yell at a few people at various points. <laughs> but I mean, I, in my first birth, I told my husband, like, I do not want an epidural. I want to be intervention free. So if I ask for it, tell me no. And I did ask for it. At 36 hours, I was like, get me that epidural. And he said, oh, well, you've said you didn't really want that. And I was like, get out of my face. Get mum here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm serious, mum, make this happen. <laughs> but I mean, in a, a testament to him, he did listen when we had those discussions and I had told him to do that. Um, but those kind of conversations are so important. And it's been really lovely to hear feedback from women saying, oh, my husband listened to the podcast or did your online birth class. And we it, we used it as a discussion point. So we both listened and then um, said how we felt and like how how should we tackle that challenge if it arises and having those conversations prior is so important. When what's happening is straightforward and there is no danger and there's no crisis happening, it can be an easier thing to manage. But when things are high stakes and you're in that medical set- setting and it's all unfamiliar, those are the times when it's really scary, right? And you can know that even before you're in the room, right? So if someone's talking to you about an emergency cesarean or, you know, if the baby's heartbeat isn't going right, those things can be quite scary when you're pregnant and it's the first time you're going to give birth. Is there a way of broaching those conversations where you're just not scared shitless? Yeah. And I guess that comes back to having a plan A, B and C. And I think I always encourage people to really, even if you want to have an intervention free birth and that is your hopes and dreams, still you need to have a plan for if I do need a cesarean, I'd like the lights turned down low. I'd like minimal conversation or all the things that you'd like to happen, even though that's not what you're aiming for, but have an idea of how you might like that to unfold. And so important because those things can turn on a like in a split second, suddenly you're birthing in a dimly lit room and the next minute you're wheeled down the hallway. So having an understanding of what might happen and then what you'd like to happen and having and, and talking about that together is so important. When when you're not, you know, full of all the hormones and full of anxiety and things like that, when you're both in a good place. And I think there's a real school of thought out there of like, I don't want to listen to any negative stories. And I know some people say, don't, you know, don't listen to all of Australian birth stories. And when I share <laughs> the challenging episodes, there is a, um, you know, an introduction that tells you what's going to happen in this episode. So if you don't feel ready to listen to it, mm. but I encourage people to listen to the kind of worst case scenario so that they're aware of um, what could happen. And just kind of knowing that if, if it's an emergency cesarean, um, that they, suddenly there'll be 10 people in the room and having that understanding, then you're not kind of, 
you know, caught off guard so much that you think, okay, I knew this was, this is normal or this is what happens in this scenario. And I think it's so hard for birth partners to see their partner in distress. And they're of course worried about your health and worried about the health of the baby. And they're not filled with the hormones and they might not be as out of it or in the zone as you are. So Mm. they're quite kind of lucid and taking everything in. So making sure that they're feeling secure and educated and aware is is vital having having a birth support team and a care provider that know know what you're hoping for and know you as a person is just so important mm. when it comes to having babies whether you have a home birth a hospital birth vaginal birth cesarean whether it's chest feeding bottle feeding midwives doulas there's so many choices we can make but also so much judgment around the decisions we make. And people kind of seem quite comfortable sharing those judgments. (laughs) Um, And when I reflect on it, I think, why, why is it this particular thing, which is so incredibly personal, like it's a physically personal thing for a woman to choose what she's going to do when it comes to her birth and her body and her baby, but why do you think there's this sense of entitlement around what women choose to do? Mm, it's a yeah, it's a really challenging one, and I think we're acutely aware of it when writing the book. And the way that I choose kind of guests and stories for the podcast, I'm really aware of that. It's very triggering. Language in the birth space is incredibly triggering. Yeah, retelling different accounts. I have a beautiful community online, and I feel like we rarely have. I, I'm very lucky to get rarely get negative feedback, I get occasional emails, but generally it's a really positive space. But people really want to voice what they think about certain things, which is educational, I think, as well, but it can really heighten things. And I think it, it's triggering it. They want to validate their experience and um, the choices that they make. And it's almost like they're still processing in a lot of ways. I often are referring people to kind of birthtrauma.org and different resources and Panda and the fantastic support networks that are out there because it's often, oh, okay, I think you need to do a little bit more work in processing this yourself because it's really triggering um, your experience. My mum's a psychologist, so I feel like I'm a big supporter of talking things through and I'm often referring people on to the to um, yeah, specialists in that area because I can't I can't be that. Although, yeah, over the years people have created a, a strong bond with me and feel like they can kind of share a lot. So I get a lot of oversharing, but I'm, yeah, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not equipped to to kind of deal with that sort of stuff. It's not my skill set, and I'm only hearing a snippet of one moment. So I'm always referring people off to the wonderful resources that we have here in Australia. Mm. That's all about talking and sort of being comfortable to air the things that we find the most challenging about our birth experience. But of course, it doesn't always go to plan. And there are many women who go through miscarriage or infertility. What have you learned from women who've shared these sorts of stories with you on the podcast? Yeah, it's been lovely to see that that one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage and it's it's not been lovely to see those numbers, but it's been lovely to see that people are more open in sharing those experiences and supporting other women um, who find themselves in that 
situation. And I think we felt acutely aware of that when writing the book, because if one in four women are picking up our book with all the hopes and dreams of holding their baby, we didn't want to just kind of drop them midway through the book and for them to feel like, oh, okay, that's not me now. That whole chapter has closed for the time being. So we dedicated a whole chapter to miscarriage and loss and then pregnancy after loss, because that's a completely different experience again. And Jodie and I recognize our own privilege in this. Um, We've been very lucky. Neither of us have had a miscarriage. So we went out and spoke to women that had, and we've detailed their experiences to support women in that book, together with fantastic organizations like Pink Elephant that really support women um, through that experience. But it's, yeah, we, it was really important for us to also unpack what what comes next because it feels like you've suddenly faced with decisions do I have a DNC do I pass the baby naturally at home what's that going to be like and they're often randomly googling at that stage and it's often not until further down the track that friends and family will say oh I've also had a miscarriage but in that moment you kind of are suddenly faced with those decisions so we wanted to really in a sensitive way unpack Um, what's involved so that they feel supported in that um, stage because it's a birth and and that is um, not when they expected to be birthing but it is a birth um, and they've got decisions and choices and options and we really wanted to support that. You know, it's interesting because I feel a lot of people say, you know, miscarriage is the last taboo. And I think, well, I think people are more willing to talk about it now. But what I never heard people talking about was the actual physical experience. And um, I had a, a, a hemorrhage at one point and I was thinking, my God, this is terrifying. And it was just a cyst and there was all reasons behind it. But I was thinking, my goodness, if you're going through a miscarriage and you have no, there's never any instruction, there's never any explanation. And that's the part that I feel we haven't been talking about, the physical experience of miscarriage. And that must be so frightening and upsetting when you're going through it on your own. And I think we're really, as a culture, um, learning to kind of really nurture the postpartum period post-baby, but you go through a postpartum period post-miscarriage, you've still created all those hormones, you've made a placenta, regardless of how far along you were, your body is still going through that same process of recalibrating all the hormones. And I think, I mean, there has been a shift with getting leave for miscarriage, it's still very small, but really acknowledging that your body has gone through that whole process this is even aside from the emotional toll that this can take, but the hormonal and physical toll, you're really going through a postpartum period and we really acknowledge that in that section of the book. You also have a chapter dedicated to people who've experienced stillbirth or early infant loss. And um, I, I think that's a really interesting consideration for a book about pregnancy and birth because when women are pregnant or about to fall pregnant or trying to fall pregnant, the very topic of stillbirth is really upsetting, isn't it? Like it, it's it's a necessary conversation to have, but a very hard one. I mean, how did you think about putting that in the book and why did yeah. you decide to have it in the end? 
Um, we really wanted to be respectful and nurturing in that um, sense as well. And we've covered that quite often on the podcast. And I mean, nobody wants to find themselves in that situation. And yet over the last, I think over the last 30 years, our stillbirth rates in Australia um, haven't really changed. And there is research and um, work going on in that space, but it really, um, the numbers are significantly high. So uh, again, a lot of women that are picking up the book aren't hoping for that. And I feel very fortunate. I haven't had to experience um, any infant loss, but I, having spoken to women on the podcast, I know that when they have experienced that loss, they've reached out to me and said, have you got other stories of women? Like how have they navigated this grief? How have they gone on to um, try for a rainbow baby? How have they gained the strength to um, carry on? And to be able to give them other women's firsthand accounts, they've reported feeling so sort of seen and held and being able to kind of grieve by listening to shared stories. And it was really important for us to carry that on throughout the book. It seems very true that shared suffering actually not makes it easier, but there's something about it that makes you feel more seen and more heard when you hear of other people going through something that's so painful. Mm. And I think for, if you don't see yourself, you don't see yourself, which is kind of a funny saying, but I mean, we try and represent all experiences in birth, all family dynamics are obviously very different ways of coming to parenthood, whether you're a solo parent, whether you're in a same-sex couple, whether you've gone through infertility challenges. We really wanted to represent kind of family dynamics, cultural backgrounds, roads into motherhood so that people saw themselves in one story or another and didn't feel like they were the only one. Mm. Now, I remember when I first brought my daughter home. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. <laughs> I do remember feeling incredibly, incredibly responsible for this tiny human. And in a way, I just sort of put my head down and got on with it. But when I look back at those days, I think, my goodness, I was so overwhelmed. And we talk a lot about, and obviously in this interview, we've talked a lot about pregnancy and birth, the lead up and, and how we manage that time. But we don't often talk about those first days and what they can be like first weeks, months, let's be honest, the first year can be a lot. I mean, do you have any advice for women who are in that initial phase of motherhood? Yeah. And again, I've seen a nice shift in this area as you would have worked in this area, seeing like postpartum doulas and postpartum meal deliveries and things are kind of improving and those discussions are improving. But um, I think we've tried to start that from the very beginning in the book, talking about essential care and how to just check in with yourself and see how you're feeling and yeah, it, with simple things like reminders of have a glass of water. And I always famously think when when I check in with myself now as a mother, I think, okay, what do I need right now? And it's more often than not to go to the toilet because I think I'm <laughs> multitasking so much. Like actually I just need to do a wee. <laughs> um, but breaking it down, I think we sort of try and steer away from like it's not always attainable financially or logistically mm. to have a spa day or to have a girls weekend. But if you can nurture yourself with essential 
little kind of hourly things um, such as going to the toilet, having a drink or just even um, being aware of your breath and relaxing your jaw and just kind of centering yourself, um, which is a great skill to have when you have toddlers and you're dealing with extra <laughs> challenges. But I think we feel like we're shaping you from the beginning of the book with those skills so that when you come into the challenge of postpartum, you can kind of try and keep yourself as grounded as possible. But we we sort of discuss postpartum from the very beginning because it's so huge and yet we also acknowledge we do have a, a smaller chapter at the end but we feel like that deserves a whole nother book to really do it justice. Mm. And we, We've kind of referred you on to the next lot of services but it really is such a complicated kind of chapter involving kind of breastfeeding, pelvic floor recovery, um, the hormonal shifts, depletion, all of those things and we couldn't kind of do it justice in this book so that will be the next one. Mm. And, you know, I think in my seven years of doing this podcast, I think for me the one thing I still believe women need to get better at and just know that they deserve it is help, asking for help, not doing it all themselves. I constantly see women having babies and not getting that extra help. And I, I think if I had have bought less onesies at three o'clock in the morning, I may have been able to afford a postpartum tool. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's reprioritizing, isn't it? But and you think- do think you're you think that you have to do it all. That's yeah, what I think even, we need except, to change. even when you are lucky enough to have family and friends support you, I think it was very hard for me in my first um, postpartum to accept that help. So mm. recognizing that most people aren't doing it, though, I mean, particularly with Instagram, you see it all looking glossy, but maybe they have got five people helping or they've got a cleaner and they've got all these things to make it happen. But just like if somebody is offering to cook your meal or offering to take the toddler to the park or, um, yeah, small offers like that, you have to just try and practice saying yes and accepting that help because mm. we can't do it on our own. And I think we've created a bit of a virtual village with Australian birth stories, but, you know, we you really do need the physical village. And, and if you can't get that, um, you have to just like, well, I think we we talk about consciously planning for your postpartum. So looking at realistically perhaps what you can afford and how much physical support you have and then how you're going to navigate that if you can do that when you're not sleep deprived and leaking milk and <laughs> all the rest of it. I think that's probably the best time to really work that out. Absolutely. Well, Sophie, thank you for your wonderful podcast and this book. I think it's going to help a lot of women and thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was lovely. Sophie Walker is the founder of Australian Birth Stories and the co-author of the new book, The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth, and we'll put a link to the book in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.